Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Matte. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Remember, UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com is our website where you can go for bonus content and to support the show. This week, we are looking at the very important issue, overlooked issue of journalism in Palestine, which is under complete assault by Israel. Dozens of Palestinian journalists have been killed so far in this genocide in Gaza. And we'll be looking at what it's like to be a Palestinian journalist under bombardment. Yeah, and we'll be talking to Anand Kusmar, who is with the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate. And again, it'll probably reach a higher number by the time this is released. But as of now, 97 journalists have been killed that we know of. It's just a, it's a genocide of journalists. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to segue from something so serious like that into the four basic food groups. But I guess there's nothing for us to do but carry on and move on. Yes, exactly. So what do we have for Democrats suck? Well, it's related, actually. So for Democrats suck, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Israel lately. Let's hear what he had to say. As John F. Kennedy said in 1960, America's friendship with Israel is a national commitment. That was true then, and it's even truer now. The United States will remain Israel's closest friend in the world. As I've said repeatedly, our support for Israel's security remains unshakable, and it always will. Wow, that's great. I mean, we hear time after time, time and time again, when American officials, U.S. officials are asked about Israel's crimes. We hear, oh, we're having serious discussions. You know, we're not going to play judge and jury, but we're having serious discussions and we're raising these issues. They're not doing anything, obviously, because we just had the Secretary of Defense saying that our relationship, our support of them is unwavering, despite the fact that they've now killed 20,000 Palestinians and have shown absolutely no restraint. And have killed 97 journalists and have killed uh, hospital workers and doctors. The adjective that he uses, unshakable, is so weird. Everybody repeats it. It's like a mantra. You always have to say, if you're a U.S. politician, our bond with Israel is unshakable. Well, unshakable means like no matter what, right. you it will not change. So like basically what they're saying is no matter how many Palestinians you kill, no matter what you do, our bond is unshakable. We will always be with you. It's just an explicit commitment to genocide. And it shows that no matter what the Biden administration says about, oh, yes, we're talking to Israel, we're having serious talks, we're trying to get them to change their behavior. It doesn't matter because they're also saying that no matter what you do, our support for you is unshakable. So go ahead, do whatever you want. Kill as many people as you want. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way they're being honest, right? It is unshakable. There's nothing that Israel can do that'll impact the relationship between uh, Israel and the United States. Well, to quote Mariah Carey, because it is her season, she is the queen of Christmas, uh, I think we need to shake it off, shake off that support for Israeli genocide. Yeah. It's also quoting Taylor Swift, I realized, too. She has a song yeah. called- I didn't know Mariah had to shake it off. I need to shake it off. You know, it's, it's that oh, one. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, I was going to say, uh, to quote Mariah Carey, it's like, dream lover, come rescue me. <laughs> that's what uh, that's what the US is to Israel, dream hmm. lover. Hmm. Well, m- music inspires all- different types of uh, references. And yes, let's shake off the support for genocide. That's what I say. And and you say, let's dream of 
being rescued from this genocidal regime. Is, is, is that oh, what that's, I'm hearing? Oh, I meant like Dream Lover is what uh, the U.S.'s nickname for Israel could be, Got or it. Israel's nickname for the U.S. is, because they're it. so enmeshed, because it's so, it. it's an unshakable bond. Got it. Yeah. And this is why you watch Useful Idiots, everybody, for high-level pop culture references. Exactly. Yeah. And lyrical analysis. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. For Republicans suck, let's turn to Michelle Bachman. I don't know if you remember her, but uh, she is a former Congress member from Minnesota, known for some really controversial statements, to put it mildly. And here she is with a new banger talking about the people of Gaza. And that's that's what the people of Gaza are. They're basically high mercenaries. That is their industry. Terrorism is their industry. That's why you have more miles of tunnels, Charlie, than you have the New York subway, because they have one industry in Gaza. And that's terrorism. So it's time that Gaza ends. The two million people who live there, they are clever assassins. They need to be removed from that land. That land needs to be turned into a national park. And since they're the voluntary mercenaries for Iran, they need to be dropped on the doorstep of Iran. Let Iran deal with those people. You know, it's hard to know what to say because nothing you say can fully capture how insane these people are, how genocidal they are. But this is a new one where not only is she calling for genocide in Gaza, which now is pretty standard in U.S. political discourse, but she wants them all to be literally dropped at the doorstep of Iran. So somehow, after ethnically cleansing Gaza, all of Gaza's remaining 2 million residents are going to be uh, transported and left, what, at the Iran border? Uh, how would that work? She, she doesn't really explain, but it's just absolutely insane. And um, to call it dehumanizing... And, and genocidal just doesn't quite capture it. Referring yeah, to all all Palestinians as hired mercenaries, uh, it's just uh, it's, again it's beyond words. And clever assassins. So that includes all of them. So that includes the one million children. Yeah, that's right. Because more than half of Gaza's uh, residents are children. So that's what she's talking about. Yeah. That's so scary. Wow. This will hopefully you know, this will be studied one day as um, the kind of rhetoric that was used to justify genocide, just as we just, you know, look at Nazi propaganda. It's no different. Right. Except unlike you know, the Nazis, they're not wearing Nazi uniforms. In the case of Michelle Bachman, she's wearing leopard print and uh, right. going on you know, corporate networks and, and uh, saying this kind of stuff. It's hard to grasp, but it just is. We can laugh at it because it's so unhinged, but it's also just so unbelievably evil. It really is evil, yeah. So for isn't that weird? Uh, we have another story about someone going to Israel. It's not Lloyd Austin is not the only person. We also got Jerry Seinfeld, who's in Israel right now. Uh, he's visiting there with his wife. And this is not the first time Jerry has been to Israel. Here's a great photo of Jerry in Israel. Check this one out. There he is holding a machine gun, standing next to a soldier, not even giving a thumbs up. They're both giving fists. It's kind of a weird symbol. Well, we've heard of Genocide Joe. We can add a new guy to the list. Genocide Jerry. Genocide Jerry. Yeah. He's there with his wife because it makes a, a it's a nice romantic genocidal vacation. And she is Genocide Jessica. Genocide Jessica. There you go. And guys, don't worry because Jerry's not alone. He is in the very amazing company of Will and Grace's Deborah Messing. She's also in Israel and she's walking around with Douglas Murray, which is great because, you know, as a Jew, 
Deborah Messing, I'm sure, is a great fan of replacement theory, right? Because all Jews love replacement theory, not at all anti-Semitic. And uh, Douglas Murray is a big proponent of replacement theory. He's a famous Islamophobe. Uh, he wants conditions to be less attractive uh, for Muslims to discourage uh, immigration. He once said that conditions for Muslims in Europe must be made harder across the board. Europe must look like a less attractive proposition. So Deborah Messing, you like to pretend that you are socially liberal, I assume. Uh, you are a staunch supporter of Israel, but usually people like you and their staunch supporters of Israel, they pretend not to hate all Muslims. So uh, I, I want to commend you for walking around uh, Israel with a guy who's an open Islamophobe and an open supporter of replacement theory. And I'd love for you to come on the show and tell us why you support him and replacement theory and making Europe less attractive for Muslims. I would love not to talk to Deborah Messing, having interacted with her before on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Please don't come on our show, Deborah Messing. Don't do not accept Katie's challenge. All right. Please, thank yeah. you. Please. All right. Fine. Please. Fine, Aaron. All right. I can't. I can't. I cannot extend an offer without my co-host permission. So you're. So you're spared, Aaron. Thank but you. Deborah, write a tweet. Tell us why you like Douglas Murray. Tell tell us why you're glad to be walking around with this guy. He has supported every single uh, U.S.-led military action ever. So that's another notch in his stellar record. Supported yeah. the Iraq War, every other intervention, and uh, according, he loves Israel because Israel is a client state of the U.S., who he loves from uh, his uh, homeland of the U.K. Right. Um, also, just another quote from him, because I think Deborah would really like this, is he made a, a PragerU video. I'm sure Deborah loves PragerU. And it was called The Suicide of Europe. And in the video, he condemns the, quote, mass movement of peoples into Europe from the Middle East, North Africa, and East Asia. Bigots are going to bigot. Bigots are going to bigot. And yeah. Deborah Messing is going to tour Israel with them. <laughs> and he also supported building the wall, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Okay. First, isn't that terrible? Let's turn to a New York story. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, was doing a uh, local newscast interview where he was asked a pretty simple question, but gave a very uh, surprising answer. So here it is. When you look at the totality of the year, if you had to describe it, and it's tough to do, in one word, what would that word be? And tell me why. Uh, New York. Uh, this is a place where every day you wake up, uh, you could experience everything from a plane crashing into our trade center to a, a person who's celebrating a new business that's open. Uh, this is a very, very complicated city. And that's why it's the greatest city on the globe. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. So, you know, pretty easy layup there. Uh, you know, one word, describe your year. Tell us why. New York, because 9-11 could happen every single day. He's like a genius. <laughs> yeah. We don't yeah. even understand how his brain works. Because to me, that doesn't make any sense. And it's a kind of weird way to praise New York by talking about 9-11. Uh, yeah. But I think it's just that I don't get it. He's, he's, uh, leagues, he's out of my league intellectually. Terrible answer, but great content for you, Splitty. So thank exactly. you, Mary Adams, for supporting yeah, local you. business. Yes, we salute you. Thank you for your service. We are really honored to be speaking to Anand Kusmar, who is joining us from Tulkarm in the West Bank. He is a volunteer with the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate, the only trade union of all Palestinian journalists in both Gaza and the West Bank. Welcome to the show, Anand Kusmar. Thank you for hosting me. Of course. 
Uh, you're joining us right now from um, Tukarm in the West Bank. Tell us, please, about what the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate is, and then tell us about what the reality of facing journalists right now in Palestine is like. Yeah, uh, the Palestinian Journalist is, uh, Syndicate is uh, the only body that presents Palestinian journalists in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but we also try and uh, provide an umbrella for Palestinian journalists wherever wherever they are. Uh, Generally speaking, our work tends to support Palestinian journalists, represent their voice. We document uh, violations uh, against these uh, journalists, and we try and advocate on their behalf. And how old is this syndicate? How long has it been around? Well, it's uh, Our syndicate is one of the oldest, and uh, it's one of the syndicates that has managed to maintain its unity across the West Bank and the Gaza Strip over the last 15 years. So what is happening right now? Uh, we know that as as of now, it may be higher, but last I checked, 97 journalists had been uh, assassinated by Israel. I'll start with a little bit of context. I, I mean, first of all, thank you very much for hosting me to speak on this really important topic of uh, targeting Palestinian journalists. Even before uh, going to the last uh, seven weeks, Palestinian journalists have always been a target for the Israeli occupation. Between the years 2000 and 2012, Israel killed 55 uh, journalists and media workers. But what we have been dealing with and witnessing over the last uh, 75 days is something completely different on a different scale. Our journalists have been specifically targeted uh, more than any segment in the Palestinian society in Gaza. Uh, during the ongoing genocidal campaign, the Israeli military killed almost 20,000 Palestinians, averaging around 1% or just less than 1% of the total population of 2.2 million. Uh, by contrast, uh, 95 of our colleagues have been killed over the 75 uh, days. This represents about 7% 7 of the estimated total number of journalists in Gaza right now. Th this 6% or 6-point difference between the 1% uh, average of the entire population and the 7% uh, of our uh, colleagues in Gaza killed by Israel indicates that around uh, 80 journalists out of the 95 were basically assassinated, uh, and the rest, they were uh, killed in uh, what you call line of duty. And the best way to, to describe uh, what happened to the rest is uh, targeted assassination. Uh, the majority of uh, these journalists were killed at home, often with family members. Uh, for example, all 10 female journalists who were killed uh, were targeted at home, including Hanin al-Qattash, uh, who was uh, killed alongside her family in Sirat camp. Um, and the same goes for all uh, journalists, male and female, over the last week who have been killed. Uh, targeting at home is really like a, a big theme. Uh, Muhammad Abul Hattab, uh, had recorded a live segment and went home. And as soon as he got home, he was uh, the house was targeted and he was killed alongside members of his family, uh, Abdullah Alawan. And uh, this comes in the context of uh, threats and incitement that has started even from the very beginning of this genocidal campaign. Um, our uh, our colleagues Sari Mansour and uh, Saeed Tawil received threats. Anas Sharif uh, famously uh, declared that he had received direct threats to his life if he had continued to work in the northern Gaza, um, and he was asked to stop uh, his work and move to the south. Uh, another theme is multiple uh, targeting. Muntasarif Sawaf, 
uh, was targeted twice. The first time, his father, uh, Mustafa Sawaf, uh, a prominent journalist in his own right, was uh, was killed in the first time, and the second time, uh, Montarsar himself. Uh, uh, and th- this goes for there are many examples. Uh, the targeting of families, you know, as a punishment. Anasif Sharif, uh, his father was killed. Um, famously, uh, Al Jazeera reporter, head of the, the bureau in Gaza, his family were killed. Uh, Mu'min al-Sharafi, uh, Muhammad al-Hatab, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but uh, we think that this is not journalists who are being targeted. It's, um, it's, a, it, it's a, maybe a wider segment of the Palestinian society uh, with the aim of two things. On the short term, um, these people represent uh, a portal, a portal for hope. Uh, for the people of Gaza, uh, they they deliver their voices uh, to all the people around the world, and targeting them is basically, on the short term, at least killing hope. But I think the target here is the foundations of the Palestinian society looking forward. Uh, so if if you look at uh, some of the names I mentioned, most of them are prominent jo- uh, journalists, but who had uh, played a really important uh, role in the society. For example, uh, Bilal Jad. Uh, is the founder and head of uh, Bayt al-Sahafa, the, the house of uh, journalism, uh, supported journalists for many, many years. He is the father of journalism in Gaza. Um, um, basically, he was uh, killed. Uh, Rushdi Sarraj, famously, uh, Dr. Adam Hassouna is a lecturer at university. Salim al-Naffar, a writer and a power, um, a literature writer. Uh, Nuruddin al-Hajjaj, I, I could go on. And uh, all of these people um, are either journalists or journalists serve a journalist type uh, purpose in the Palestinian society. Our journalists continue to, to live in uh, constant danger. One of the features of the targeting of journalists is the fact that um, maybe a majority of people in Gaza are displaced now, but in the case of journalists, there is uh, all of them. Uh, every single one of them are not at home now. They are the, live, lost their houses in previous strikes, attempts on their life, or uh, they they had to flee. Uh, they cannot go anywhere. They can't rent houses. Uh, they are seen as targets. Uh, they've expressed this before. Many of, the, of those who were killed uh, shared uh, some of the threats and uh, to their life. Um, so this is about the situation in Gaza right now. And uh, also, uh, Samer was killed um, just, I believe, on Friday last week. Not only was he shot, but then he was um, prevented from getting medical care, and Israel killed the medical, uh, the the paramedics who were trying to reach him. So they shot the, so they shot him, and made him bleed to death over six over the course of six hours. You know, in these sort of cases, uh, people try and get uh, hold of a journalist, you know, um, who would maybe uh, be able to save the situation, you know? I understand this is really upsetting. And apolo- I'm sorry. Did you know him? No, I, no. <laughs> that's also b- uh, part of the reality of living under occupation and apartheid is these people I know of. Some of these people are icons that I can never, uh, I can never see and meet, um, and they can never uh, come here. And, 
you know, for anybody who has uh, friends in the West Bank from from Gaza or uh, from the West Bank, have friends in Gaza, uh, it's phone uh, messages, that sort of stuff. You know, I have friends that I've never met. We actually have a clip of uh, the Palestinian journalist based in Washington, D.C., Saeed Arakat, asking Matthew Miller of the State Department about Israel's targeting of journalists. So let's let's play that. And then, uh, Anand, on, please react to that. A lot of journalists have been killed, maybe 90 and so on. Do you have any doubt that the, that Israel intentionally targets journalists? So we have not seen evidence that so, Israel, uh, let me yeah. use a rule, let me finish. We have not seen any evidence that Israel is intentionally targeting journalists. Uh, obviously, we have seen um, uh, a number, dozens of journalists die mm-hmm. as a result of this conflict. Uh, saw one, uh, Samer uh, Abu Dhaka right. uh, from Al Jazeera, who was just right. killed in, in uh, recent days. Right. and. As we have said before, we mourn every journalist who has given their life in covering this conflict and bringing information to the American public and to uh, people all around the world. Uh, We think the work that the free press does is critical to a democracy, especially in conflict zones um, where, unfortunately, far too many do pay this sacrifice and our condolences go out um, to all of their families. And in other, and there are cases where, when we have seen um, uh, actions that we thought warranted, we have raised questions with the Israeli government and sought more information. You saw us do that with respect to uh, the Reuters journalist who was killed in uh, in Lebanon, um, and we will continue to do so. And we will continue to encourage Israel to to uh, comply with their own rules of engagement and comply with international humanitarian law. And whenever, if we ever see signs that they're not, we will, of course, be very clear about that with them. So, so go, um, go, go ahead, go, Sam, let me, last Samra, one, Saeed, because there are yeah, Samra, a, lot of, a lot of other you people. You mentioned Samar Abu Dakhla. I mean, he was bleeding there for like six hours and they sent in a, a, a crew to retrieve him. They were all shot dead. So they knew exactly where he was and what he was bleeding right there. Trying, people are trying to reach and, and retrieve him. And they dis, the Israeli army disallowed them from doing that. So, so wouldn't that be intentional? In so a- again, uh, as always, it's very difficult for me to comment from specific facts here. We're in an extremely challenging information space when you see uh, different accounts about um, about activities on the ground. But as I said, we continue to be cl- clear with Israel that they must comply with all international humanitarian Thank law. You. Go ahead. For me, this is... Uh... A basic, basic uh, line that has been used by governments, by the media, by anybody who um, finds themselves complicit in justifying, facilitating, helping, and covering up uh, for an ongoing genocide. Um, and I think history will not look, uh, you know, very nicely on uh, people who have done this. And it's 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 happening to a, a quite a shocking level. All the information I told you, uh, I'm sure you've already seen it, you know, the numbers, uh, the fact that, like I said, uh, close to 7% of the journalists in Gaza have been already killed, um, a lot higher than the average uh, is enough. Uh, The fact that they've been targeted, their names are out there, their stories are out there. People can deny that all they want. You can't change the reality. And Israel knows where all these people live. They have all of that information. Um, generally speaking, I don't like to to speculate. Uh, but if we are to, to to think about this in the context of the 972 uh, article, which was also followed up by a piece in the Guardian, 
Um, you have to think about the AI, not the, IA, the AI system. What we have to think about is the bank of target. So the numbers show that our journalists are inside that bank of targets and high priority because no other segment in the Palestinian society in Gaza have had such uh, disproportionate representation in, in those who were killed. If you look at the people who logically, let's say, uh, find themselves working in a fire zone, firing zone for the Israeli army, medics and so on, Actually, their numbers correlate with the average, maybe above average a little bit. But we are talking about seven times the average, you know. And if you want to take out those who were killed during their work, then we are talking about six times the average. So there is a specific policy to target. There are statements. There are inc there is incitement that is quite well documented. So yeah, uh, people can deny all they want, but it doesn't change reality and. Uh, uh, the same people who are denying it now, uh, no doubt, will be the same people who will be obstructing the path to uh, accountability in the future. And no surprise, it's the same people who are uh, helping in different ways. Some are sending weapons. And uh, most of our journalists were, were killed uh, by weapons that are made in the U.S. Uh, I do not expect a U.S. Uh, state representative in this moment of time to come out and say, yes, we have seen clear evidence that Israel is using our weapons to uh, to kill journalism in Gaza, as the CPJ uh, called it. Samar Abu Dhaka, the Al Jazeera journalist who was attacked by Israel uh, and then bled to death because Israel attacked the ambulances trying to reach him, forcing him to die. Uh, he had moved his family out of Gaza to Belgium, and so he was not with them. Uh, when he was murdered. And just a few weeks before he was killed, his son released a music video paying tribute to him, uh, to his father who was still inside Gaza. And let's just watch a clip of that. So that's Zayn Abu Dhaka uh, with that video tribute to his father, again, released just a few weeks before he was killed. And then when Samar Abu Dhaka was killed, his son made this video. Marhaba, and I'm Zayn Ibn al-Ghali, the Shaheed Samar Abu Dhaka. 
اول شيء صارت انه توقعش ابدا كنت في المدرسه امي بتقول لي انه ابوكم تصور انا ما قدرتش اروح فحاولت قد ما اقدر اقول للمدير انه ابوي تصور بعدين روحت وضلينا نستنى بيجي اكثر من سبع ساعات وهو متصور ما قدرنا نعمل شيء ضلينا نرن على الكل رنينا على الصليب الاحمر على المستشفيات على الدنيا كلها رنينا غزه في خنونس ولا حد قدر يجيبه اخر شيء جابوه ولا قوي شهيد اول شيء انا بحب اقول الله يرحمك يا بابا ونشوفك ان شاء الله بالجنه وان شاء الله راح حقك حلمي اللي انت كنت بدك اياه انا اوصله ان شاء الله راح اصير مغني كبير والدنيا كلها تعرفني بحبك يا بابا In this video, he's, uh, he starts by introducing himself as the son of the dear hero, his, his father. And um, he tells the story when he received the news while he was at school. And uh, uh, he tried to get out of school to, to, by saying that my dad was injured and so on. And then he went home. And then he tells the story of the six hours where the family were desperately calling everybody, the Red Cross, contacts in Gaza and Khan Yunis to try and retrieve the... Uh, his father, who was injured at the time, and he said, and eventually, when they when they reached him, he had uh, he had passed away. And he promised him to fulfill his dream to be a big, uh, big, famous uh, singer. Can you talk to us about Samer's colleague uh, Wael Dadud, who's the Gaza bureau chief for Al Jazeera, uh, was with Samer when Samer was murdered. Wael was able to walk to get medical attention while he was wounded. Uh, and he has already, in this war, lost his wife uh, and some of his children, uh, a grandchild, in a previous Israeli bombing, but has remained inside Gaza and continues to do reporting from there. I think the majority of people around the world see the sacrifice and the effort uh, that uh, our colleagues are uh, putting in and the danger that uh, they're putting themselves in. Um, they see the attacks, uh, they see everything, um, and these people uh, should be saluted as heroes. Uh, they are not standing up just for the Palestinian people. Uh, they are standing up for humanity. They are doing, they are being professional, doing their profession, going going about their work, uh, the amazing work that I, I think it's almost unparalleled, you know. I'm, I'm sure there are heroes all around the world, but some of the stuff that we've been seeing is, uh, you know, uh, amazing, very inspiring. Uh, we know that the sacrifices of uh, those who, who we lost and those who are still, uh, you know, on their feet, in the line of duty, will not go for vain. Uh, uh, there are generations of future Palestinian journalists who will uh, draw inspiration from these stories and uh, um, maybe they are killed, but uh, uh, their legacy will, uh, will carry on for uh, generations, I am sure. You had um, written to me about a uh, new investigation by the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate uh, into the role of the mainstream media in Israel's atrocities in Gaza. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, uh, we got in touch, uh, I guess, when we issued our statement on October the 31st, uh, which we talked about uh, uh, 
some of the media coverage helping facilitate the genocide. This is not early on. This is three weeks on, but it was uh, pretty obvious. And before I talk about media bias, actually on a personal note, or like on a, at least us as as a syndicate of Palestinian journalists, we 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 feel let down big time because the international uh, coverage has not only contributed to the genocide, the wider genocide, but also has contributed to the targeting of. Uh, our journalists, they carried unfounded stories uh, that were later on exaggerated, despite the fact that they were uh, debunked from uh, from the very beginning, they were challenged. Uh, and luckily, a lot of these uh, allegations early on involved international agencies that their, their response was actually uh, covered, had it been a Palestinian source that is uh, uh, trying to say the same thing and uh, it probably wouldn't have received the same sort of coverage. And uh, yeah, we feel it down. We feel it down that uh, journalists inside these cooperations uh, didn't challenge, didn't do their, their job before. Uh, uh, and even after these uh, allegations were proven to be wrong, the mainstream media continued to allow their guests to accuse uh, Palestinian journalists with all sorts of stuff, not just Palestinian journalists. Uh, the dehumanization of Palestinians on mainstream media is uh, off limits at the moment. Um, but yeah, going back to to, to that statement, uh, we felt that we need to air journalists around the world and also media corporations to think uh, about uh, the ethics of the profession, the standards of the profession, uh, when they are covering uh, the Palestinian cause. Uh, the context was completely missing, and um, and the context was even to an extent deliberately manipulated uh, to justify war, to uh, cover up for the crimes, to, you know, make it sound like, what do you expect? You know, that you hear that also, you know, from from top journalists, unfortunately. And we, we we have to pay the price uh, for that. Uh, but other than that, it's the language uh, you, you read in every article. Uh, there is a, there is an attempt to use uh, syntax to even change facts a little, a little bit, which is disappointing and uh, the sort of thing you'd expect from propagandist uh, media, not mainstream media. And the other thing is uh, the dehumanizing uh, uh, language. I think uh, I have always thought that uh, anti-Palestinian sentiment is one of the most uh, accepted in mainstream, uh, for like one of the most accepted forms of racism, I mean. And uh, since October 7, uh, yeah, we, we we were not ready for this this level. They took it up, uh, uh, you know, a, to a huge level. Uh, the sort of comments that uh, guests make that go unchallenged, and at the same time, when a word like intifada, you know, can be uh, you know asserted that it means uh, genocide, while Genocidal comments are not even unchallenged and uh, seen as rational or providing important context when they're not. Right. Um, but to go back to the Al Ahli Hospital uh, incident, I think that's I think that's a good example because at the at the moment and for many years it's been really easy uh, to go for obvious cases. You know, uh, most journalists, even on the let's say 
balanced side of coverage, uh, prefer to focus on uh, clear-cut cases where Israel is found to manipulate uh, and produce fabricated evidence on all of these things. And obviously, the instant denials, slow release of information, you know, controlled release of some information, let's say. Uh, but it, it had become a habit to ignore all of the cases where it's contested or uh, there is strong Israeli denials or claims of Israeli evidence. So the case of Al-Ahli Hospital is quite interesting. And what uh, makes it even more relevant now is uh, Dr. Qassan Abu Sitta, who is now out of Gaza. And uh, he was... Uh, at the hospital at the time, and he provided a really important testimony, which I think maybe it's worth showing on your show now or uh, maybe future shows, uh, where he describes the type of injuries and uh, he makes his, uh, uh, let's say, estimations pretty clear about the type of uh, ammunition that was used in, uh, in that strike. But to go back to the incident itself, uh, it was widely covered as an Israeli strike to begin with. And as soon as there is an Israeli denial, uh, the mainstream media backtrack and offer apologies. And uh, these apologies were offered despite the fact that uh, Israel produced evidence which was uh, proven to be wrong straight away. And not only this, the story evolved in a way that um, kind of exposed the early, earlier coverage. For example, Israel had misidentified one of its own missiles and pointed the blame on it for uh, the hospital uh, strike and said that it had, you know, the footage of Al Jazeera showed a rocket that was misfiring. The, and it turned out that this missile was actually an Israeli interceptor. And this is by an investigation by the New York Times that was published on the 25th or maybe 24th of October. So a whole week, you know, such an obvious case, you know, the fact that it was an interceptor, apparently it took a whole week for the New York Times to figure out. You know, and what did the BBC do the next day? They changed their verify BBC. You know, I'm sure everybody knows BBC verify, but they changed their verify article where they took out uh, the problematic now debunked information and replaced it with an admission that the explosion in Al Jazeera footage was un in fact unrelated to the explosion in the hospital but failed to mention, and the article is still the same, I invite you to go and Google it, just BBC Al-Ahli Hospital, it, 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 it still doesn't mention the significance of that. It doesn't say that Israel had pointed uh, uh, to this rocket, and it doesn't say anything. It doesn't even mention the New York Times investigation itself. So the level of manipulation, and even to go back to the BBC, the BBC based uh, their Verify article on... Uh, opinions of weapons experts. And they say that they contacted 20, out of which nine hadn't replied when they published it on the night, October 19th. And um, these people supposedly haven't, hadn't uh, replied even after the few updates, but let's assume they still hadn't replied. And they chose and presented four opinions that contradict each other, but at the same time, they're still basing their verify article on these uh, supposed uh, military experts. But uh, if we, uh, the reason why I think it's important to focus on these things, uh, look at how the media looked, uh, dealt with this, but let's look at the available evidence. Israel released three videos that were turned out to be of the wrong time. 
merely seconds of what we need to be able to see the incident. So we do know that from the Israeli side, there are three videos that show the moment. The uh, videos were released, but later deleted, or some of them are still up, but uh, open source community uh, investigators uh, have proven that these videos do not correlate with the incident, but sometime before. And no one is asking for the real videos. The BBC didn't even mention that Israel possesses videos that could help identify what happened. None of that is uh, is happening. And uh, it goes even further where credible human rights organizations such as Human Rights Watch uh, uh, fall victim for this media bias and release a report that is uh, premature and uh, it had inconclusive uh, evidence or findings, and as many had criticized it already, and I uh, uh, invite uh, your viewers to Google more about this, particularly what uh, the writings of uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, who, who didn't even deal with the technical details, but dealt with the framing and the wording of uh, uh, the report that clearly was deliberately trying to uh, make almost linguistic connections between uh, the findings of their so-called military experts and uh, the explosion at Al-Ahli Hospital. I would say the media coverage of Al-Ahli Hospital was desperate, to be honest with you. We actually have video uh, that, that the syndicate put out, a short video documenting this. At 6.59 p.m. local time on October 17, Israel executed a strike targeting the Baptist Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City's Al-Zaytuna neighborhood. The strike killed and injured hundreds of Palestinians. Al Jazeera, which was broadcasting live approximately 1.2 kilometers west of the hospital, captured the incident in real time. Those live pictures coming into us from Gaza following reports of an Israeli airstrike that there have been 500 casualties in that Israeli airstrike. As soon as news of the hospital strike began circulating, cities around the world witnessed an eruption of impassioned protests. For many people, the attack on the medical facility, where thousands were seeking refuge, represented a watershed moment. The strike was followed by urgent calls for an immediate ceasefire. World leaders were quick to condemn the strike against the hospital. In a statement on social media, Guterres said, I am horrified by the killing of hundreds of Palestinian civilians in a strike on a hospital in Gaza today, which I strongly condemn. French President Emmanuel Macron said nothing could justify a strike against a hospital or targeting civilians. European Council Chief Charles Michel said an attack against civilian infrastructure was not in line with international law. As mainstream media outlets reported, the hospital attack featured the telltale signs of an Israeli strike. Uh, you know, it is hard to see what else this could be, really, given the size of the explosion, other than an Israeli airstrike. Or... A few hours after the strike, the Israeli military used Twitter to deny its involvement, claiming instead that a rocket launched by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad had misfired and struck the hospital. The Israeli military's original tweet included a video clip that purportedly captured the moment of the hospital strike. It quickly became apparent that the video footage did not capture the hospital strike, but instead a different incident that occurred one hour later. 
the Israeli military removed the video about 30 minutes after. I helped uh, produce uh, this video, and I think uh, uh, if anybody is interested in uh, the story of Al-Ahli, should watch this video. It's about 13 minutes, but uh, I think it's very informative. Uh, it goes through in detail about particularly the coverage and how deliberate the, the coverage was. I want to ask you more about the framing of this war. And in the words of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, it's Israel that is the victim here and Palestinians that are the aggressor. Let's look at what he just said. I hear virtually no one saying, demanding of Hamas that it stop hiding behind civilians, that it lay down its arms, that it surrender. This is over tomorrow if Hamas does that. This would have been over a month ago, six weeks ago, if Hamas had done that. And how could it be, how can it be that there are no demands made of the aggressor and only demands made of the victim? Palestinians are the aggressor. Israel is the victim, according to Antony Blinken. And if you read U.S. media coverage, this is pretty much the outlook that they adopt. It's as if the occupation by Israel of Gaza, which is going on for 56 years, doesn't exist. Okay. Anybody who is not able to apply what they say on both sides is, I'm sorry to say, not telling the truth. It's being misleading. Uh, to say that uh, anybody who suffered something similar to October 7 uh, would be justified doesn't apply to Palestinians. Palestinians do not have that right to self-defense. They not have, regardless of the rights or wrongs of this situation, um, I prefer to engage with people who are uh, willing to apply their moral standards both ways. Anything else is propaganda. This interview, ironically enough, is probably done after uh, 74 days where Israel has proven uh, that it's, it has no uh, care for Palestinian civil, uh, civilian life whatsoever. Um, it has shown, as I explained to you, with the targeting of Palestinian journalists and prominent figures of the community, uh, shown intent to destroy this community. I'm not talking about the statements because they are quite well covered by Israeli officials, the president, the prime minister, all the ministers and so on, each one of them. Uh, has produced their own version of this uh, genocidal language. But I'm talking about the actions that everybody should be able to see. But for this interview to happen also after Israel uh, killed three of its own hostages who were shirtless, holding a white flag, you know, pleading for their lives in Hebrew. Um, if that doesn't show that uh, the Israeli military is not in fact targeting Hamas and uh, views civilian life as worthless, uh, then I don't know what would. And I don't know if there is any need to try and change the words of these people. You know, And we know uh, that uh, there are ways to change these people, not just to challenge them in media. And I think it's, that's why it's quite important to talk about ways we can change this. And if we can't change it, how we can we, we bypass it? You know, because 
with the international community, um, Western governments, the UN, human rights organizations, uh, international law, the, the sort of things that you look for. Even the media is being targeted uh, to bring a change to end this. When this is not happening, then I think the responsibility falls on the next layer, civil society and average people, and we do have the power. We have the power to influence. Uh, luckily, we don't have to do this with every single case because in many other cases, there is movement. So for example, he said, uh, he talked about Hamas. Hamas is a sanctioned organization. You know, if you can uh, apply the same sanctions on Israel and the, the calls for accountability since October 7, as the main means of reaching a sustainable solution are louder than ever. Everybody can see this now. There needs to be accountability for what's happening. Otherwise, it will repeat itself again, because we've been here before. And this accountability will not come from the people who are selling weapons and providing weapons, because they will be next to the Israeli ministers in the line of accountability. They will not, we shouldn't wait for them to change their tone. They are saying this not to protect Israel, but to protect themselves. Something that people are constantly saying to defend Israel's actions is that Hamas uses human shields. But um, you had written to me about uh, credible allegations of Israel using human shields. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, okay. So, uh, from really early days with the targeting of journalists, I decided to visit the syndicate and uh, see if there is anything I can help with. My English is good, you know, all of that. And since then, I've been full time with them. And one of the things that I try to do is, you know, come across stories that are not getting, I mean, to be honest with you, all the stories are not getting their fair share of coverage. And uh, I came across uh, uh, a Twitter post for an account that luckily I had been uh, following for a while. So I had a, a little bit of background about who this guy is and so on. And he posted this testimony where the Israeli army arrest uh, this guy um, and use him basically as a suicide bomber. Uh, they uh, put a suicide belt or an explosive belt on, his, uh, on him with a camera, tied him to a rope. Uh, pushed him into a tunnel and uh, screamed at him and shot next to him to threaten him into going to the tunnel. And uh, as he put it in the testimony, he he knew what was happening. Had, had the camera detected anything, you know, that would have been him gone. And he's uh, somebody who they just picked up. There is no allegations. Um, he mentions in the beginning of the post that they asked him for his name and details about his family and threatened uh, to do harm to his family if he didn't comply. And after he got out, uh, they got, uh, according to the testimony again, uh, they got a 15-year-old, somebody who have a, a, a smaller frame to go further. Um, but luckily, the testimony mentions that uh, this guy came out alive, alhamdulillah. Uh, I checked uh, the story as much as I could. Uh, we correlated it with other testimonies and reports and accounts of uh, the use of human shields and similar uh, incidents in the same area in the same day. And that's why I decided to, to email you and uh, email others uh, about this. It's also worth noting that Amnesty International has found uh, documented cases of Israel using human shields, but not of Hamas. The whole human shields thing is part of this dehumanizing language, this uh, uh, attempt 
to justify uh, uh, basically the downgrading of the value uh, of Palestinian life, uh, the justification of a genocide against uh, a population, or at least a genocidal campaign against a population. Really, I am lost for words uh, after all we've witnessed, uh, all the testimonies that have uh, come across, including, again, I'm sorry to go back to the story of the three soldiers who were chased, despite the fact that they were shirtless, you know? Like, is, is this a reflection of Hamas using uh, the Palestinian population as a... But if we want to go back one step, uh, this war doesn't have to be happening. And in that case, there would be no case for Hamas using uh, Palestinians as human shields. This war is happening for a very simple reason. Israel never accepted the presence of Palestinians anywhere between the river and the sea. Not in the West Bank, not in the Gaza Strip. In the West Bank, Palestinians were rounded up in big concentrations of population, otherwise known as cities. These cities have become similar to what Gaza was 10 or 15 years ago. They've become open-air prisons. The, the, this war is happening because there is no plan for what happens after that. What happens after you round up all the Palestinians and squeeze them in as small space as possible, take their land and natural resources, take all their possible avenues for future development and, you know, sustainable living, not dependent on the occupation. There isn't a single plan. There is no answer. So uh, what's happening in Gaza is just a few years ahead of what could end up happening in the West Bank. And there will be a spark. I'm sorry to tell you now. There will be a spark. But this is not what it is about. And this has been happening from right from the beginning, and even before the beginning. Uh, this has been happening for 100 years at least. Let me tell you about ethnic cleansing in the Jordan Valley area. Because there are no bombs, no human shields, no Hamas, nothing. The Jordan Valley area is the most fertile land of the West Bank. It represents almost a third of the West Bank. It's on the east. It's a strip east of the West Bank. It used to be the food basket not only for the West Bank and the whole area in the river between the river and the sea. Not only this, until 1993, hundreds of trucks of vegetables were going and being exported directly to Jordan, not even without, without Israeli control over that border. It was the only border uh, of its type like this, and obviously it was closed with Oslo. Very few demolitions took place. Well, many demolitions took place, but people didn't flee because of demolitions. In the last 30 years or 40 years, the population has gone down from 300,000 to 56,000. Those 56,000 live in 10% of the total area of the Jordan Valley. One of the main reasons why these people had to leave is control over water. You know, this population that has been living on uh, farming for a long, long, long time uh, were denied access to fresh water or like less uh, 
saline water from deeper reservoirs. So they were restricted to farming for far many, many years with salty water. This salty water turned their whole habitat into desert. Not only this, Israel was over-extracting water from the area in what looks like now a deliberate attempt to do exactly what I told you about. And the Jordan Valley area is culturally one of the most interesting in the whole region. This is where the peasants and the Bedouins have maybe one of the best examples of coexistence and maybe a complementary cycle. You know, it's very important culturally. It has been farmed for thousands of years. Now, it's a desert-like land. You can only grow desert-like plants that like salty water, like dates, and so on. I didn't mention a shot or a house demolition or anything, even though that sort of stuff is happening, and settler harassment and so on. But that's not why 250,000 people have moved over the last 30 years. Let's talk about Israeli journalists for a second. There are a few brave voices like Gideon Levy, Amir Haas, who are honest journalists and have been documenting the reality of the occupation for many years. But on television in Israel and in the newspapers, the majority of journalists are open cheerleaders for their government. To illustrate, this is a self-described journalist named Eddie Cohen, who on Twitter is polling their audience to ask whether or not Wael Dadu, who is the Al Jazeera bureau chief uh, inside Gaza, who's already lost his wife, uh, two of his children, and a grandchild, um, whether or not Wael Dadu should die. Uh, the questions the poll says, do you hope that Al Jazeera correspondent Wael Al Dadu will receive martyrdom, enter paradise, and enjoy rivers of wine and perfumes? and even tagged Wael Dadu in this uh, question. So that's an Israeli self-described journalist named Eddie Cohen. And this is uh, from Israeli state, uh, this is from Israeli television, a journalist calling for more than 100,000 more Palestinians to be killed by Israel. I believe the army had to strike harder and kill 100,000 individuals at the beginning. There are Hamas members. There are 20,000 Hamas members. I can't see who was involved in the war, who was not, who was innocent. And asked again, do you really want to kill 100,000 Gazans? I do believe this. So basically, that this journalist is calling for killing 100,000 Palestinians in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, at the start of your question, you mentioned uh, some of the Israeli journalists who have done tremendous work. Uh, and they're not limited to Neef Gordon, Amir Haas. There are... Unfortunately, few, but they are there and they're doing important work. And what you talk about later is, I think, a testament to what I said earlier about uh, the anti-Palestinian sentiment and, uh, you know, the how it's accepted in the mainstream. Um, if you advocate for the genocide of Palestinians, you can say it on TV. And next day you can be on a flight to Berlin and from Berlin you can go, you know, to all the civilized countries that care about human rights and so on, and no one will ask a question. But if you're a Palestinian who uh, even sometimes works for a human rights organizations, some like uh, a few that have been declared terrorist organizations in the West Bank, then you are considered to be maybe somebody we we don't want to associate ourselves with. You know, where donors start uh, questioning 
or thinking twice about working with you and partners and so on, uh, while journalists openly advocating for the killings of tens and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians do not even have to think about this. Did he look like he even had a thought on his mind that he would ever have to face any sort of scrutiny uh, because of this or pay any sort of price? Uh, we have a situation where uh, people from all around the world uh, can, you know, join uh, what has turned into a killing feast, you know, and they will go back to their countries and they will not face any terrorism charges uh, and so on. Uh, and what happens when these sort of same things are highlighted? There's a travel ban. So, you know, you, you have and a, a travel ban to whom? Travel ban to uh, individual Israeli settlers who are acting as uh, individual citizens, you know, not members of the military. Some of them maybe serve, but basically some of them are off duty. Some of them are supported by the army. But the occupation is not being carried out by a bunch of teenage extreme settlers. The occupation is being carried out and supported and maintained by the Israeli government and its supporters internationally, who seem to be happy to support it all the way and overlook every single thing. There isn't a measure of meaningful accountability that has been directed towards Israel almost ever. Not a significant one anyway. Finally, last question for me is, what is it like where you are right now uh, when you walk around? Is it is it tense? Is there lots of violence? What is happening right where you are? Yeah, I think obviously with the, what's happening in Gaza, and we want everybody to focus on what's happening in Gaza, maybe some of the stuff that's happening in the West Bank, particularly related to also to journalists. You know, the, the number of attacks against journalists are going up. Uh, it, again, it's important to, refer, to say that uh, the attacks against journalists are not happening in a vacuum. They're not new. This is something that has been happening for a long, long, long time. Uh, we documented 9,000 attacks between uh, in the last 10 years, basically. Uh, 9,000, that's three a day, imagine, at attacks against journalists. But uh, maybe uh, moving on to what's happening in the West Bank in general, I live in the city of Tulkarim, so maybe I can talk a little bit about this. Um, the, the city had been uh, suffering from incursions, regular incursions, for way before October 7. Uh, these incursions have resulted... Uh, uh, in the killing of many, including viral videos of kids being shot, not even maybe carrying a phone in their hand in front of their family. And they, I'm sure you remember the video that was taken by the sister and the father goes to, 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 to save his son or even to retrieve him and uh, he's shot at and injured. Uh, so this is the sort of incursions that we've been having. But since seven of, uh, the 7th of October, the, there is an element of collective punishment that has been, you know, exacerbating uh, massively. And we, we almost like now have a standard for an invasion, uh, for how it starts or how it happens. Um, there are two, I would say, we break down into two categories. One category where the Israeli army arrives after midnight and starts attacking uh, infrastructure, 
particularly water and electricity. Uh, they attack the grid, so that's a form of collective punishment. So the whole area was electricity, but they also dig streets and get water pipes out. Uh, so this is, this is the st- uh, one type, and the other type is they send in these uh, private security, or n- sorry, undercover security forces for specific missions, and sometimes they, these people and Actually, quite a lot of the time, they are uncovered because they are, you know, uh, trying to operate in a in a small community where everybody knows everybody. Uh, there was an incident about uh, two weeks ago where uh, an undercover force was discovered at the entrance of uh, uh, Tulkarim refugee camp. Uh, the estimates that uh, they were going to do something or towards uh, Nur Shamis refugee camp. And uh, a shop owner uh, discovered that they, these were armed uh, undercover security. So he started running in the street and screaming, saying these are, uh, you know, there is, um, he's screaming because we know what happens when these guys, you know, uh, get, uh, who are there, when they're there. So, uh, what happened? They're there to carry out an execution, basically, or a kidnapping, one of the two things. So he wanted to protect whoever is, uh, you know, in the area because uh, uh, these undercover forces, uh, if, you know, they will shoot to kill straight away. Um, so, and it doesn't take much for them to feel threatened, you know, a kid with a phone, you know, that sort of stuff. So he was screaming and they shot him. So effectively, they exposed themselves more because like no no matter how loud he can scream, uh, when they fired at him, they exposed themselves a lot more. And in this sort of situation, it's really horrible because usually it happens uh, before uh, midnight, people are not home yet. Uh, in order to rescue this now trapped, you know, force, uh, the, Obviously, forces on standby just storm the city in huge numbers. It's like uh, when it happened two weeks ago, it felt like this is the invasion of Baghdad or, you know, like we're a small city and, you know, they claim that there are militants, but we do not have an army. You know, the number of vehicles and uh, the number of destruction uh, that took place in the following uh, 30 hours where there was no electricity, no water, hundreds uh, of uh, infrastructure facilities uh, and houses and shops were destroyed. Uh, they have even seemed to be bringing to Tulkarim a type of bulldozer that has a long arm so that they can reach higher uh, buildings and destroy the fronts of these buildings. Um, uh, on the next day, I was helping with the local human rights organization document what had happened. In one uh, incident, uh, when the bulldozer arrived to the uh, area, all the residents of the area, they ran towards one house, apart one, uh, of one person who was deaf. And when they were, everybody was gathered in one place, he hadn't heard the bulldozer. So people had to rescue him from the roofs and so on. And uh, then the bulldozer started attacking the house that the people gathered in. So they had to uh, dig a hole from the other side of the house. Uh, and while they were digging the hole, um, there was kids amongst the uh, 11 people who were in the house, and these people were pushed out from a ventilation hole. And you know, ventilation holes are usually high. So there was somebody else on the other side to catch little kids who can fit through this 
ventilation hole and the rest of the people basically destroyed uh, a hole or made a hole in the in the kitchen on the other side of the house to, to run out and uh, luckily they they thought to do this and luckily they they managed to do it because after opening basically the bulldozer would open the house take the front of the house and then they would shoot in what they call an uh, energy which is a uh, uh, basically a grenade that can be shot from a, from a gun in edge uh, bombs and they shot these uh, bombs inside the house thinking that there were people inside not knowing that they had managed to escape so this is the sort of uh, thing that happened um, and also you know people are going to tell me how are you going to prove this but i live in tulkarim it feels like when they come in they almost like have a desired number of people to kill because during that invasion also because like i said i documented all the cases tens of shops and houses were attacked on the way out as the uh, troops were withdrawing 30 hours later a drone attacks a group of young men playing cards they had been trapped without electricity without water the invasion happened around 10 30 in the evening when the um, undercover force was discovered so people's phones were not uh, charged you know people were stuck outside the refugee camp because it was completely encircled all sorts of terrific uh, horrific situations so after these kids dared to play in a court between two houses cards and they were attacked uh, in a drone a kamikaze drone as they called them and it killed five people so after 30 hours of not being able to do anything other than damage and destruction, you know, you need something to go on the media, say we killed five terrorists in Tulkarim. Otherwise, what was happening? Israel has released a video of an alleged um, doctor, a uh, Palestinian doctor who's allegedly admitted to being part of Hamas. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah obviously. Yeah, can I you, saw the can video. Can you comment on that? But to me, I've never been to Gaza, so I'm really probably one of the least people, uh, least qualified people to say. But to me, it looks like it's, it's scripted. It's almost talking points, and he's like saying them as uh, there's one line where you know he doesn't say the whole line, and you know the the interrogator waits until the whole uh, line comes out. Um, I think this, this video uh, proves more than anything that under interrogation or threat to when you have this control over people's lives and threats to their family, you can get people to say anything you like. I mean, it's obvious, like every single thing Israel says should be treated as a lie right. at this point. By default. They lied about the uh, Hamas headquarters under al-Shifa. They lied about the beheaded babies. They've been caught lying so many times. There's no reason to take anything they say seriously in the absence of like, you know, uh, mountains of evidence. Uh, otherwise, it should just be acknowledged to be... Um, the, the lie that it is yeah i think this is an important point but i also think that we need to not allow this to distract us from the real story a lot yeah. of these stories are almost an attempt for us not to talk about what we can do and try and debunk these lies like you said they've produced so many lies and to be honest with you these lies are irrelevant you know even if this head of the hospital was in fact a hamas member it makes no difference you know it makes no difference it doesn't justify any of the things that they think this testimony justifies it doesn't justify it does not justify leaving babies to die right. of starvation yeah you know to and, and by the way i'm starting to interrupt a journalist who documented that 
the babies who were left to die at Al Nasser Hospital, the journalist's name is Mohammed Balusha. He was recently attacked by Israel yeah. and actually released a video of himself bleeding. Yes, it's a famous video. He was uh, shot by a sniper. Um, I, I think also uh, this is yet another story of the heroic work of our journalists. You know, it, the fact that he even made it to the hospital. You know, it's it's no surprise that the video that we saw of the hospital had only one person in it. The video, the hospital. This guy took all sorts of risks to get there, and not only this. After threats were made against his life, he's still continuing to work, and even after he's uh, injured. You know, his and all of our journalists have received, you know, are are displaced. Like I said, all of them. Are you afraid for your life? Look, with what's happening in Gaza, it, you, we cannot afford to think about any of these things. We really can't. Um, uh, obviously, there is a heavy repression in the West Bank, but I think uh, it would be. Yeah, there, there is no space in my mind to think about such risks when people are literally have been in survival mode for 70 days. Well, Anand Kuzmar, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and yes. to help shed light on the plight of Palestinian journalists. Thank you for your time and for all the work you're doing. And do you want to call on the on foreign journalists? Anything you want to demand of foreign journalists before you go? Uh, please do not disgrace this profession any more than the disgrace that we are seeing and have been seeing over the last 75 days and longer. Respect the ethics of the profession. Don't let, uh, when you try and distort reality, you cause all sorts of problems. Maybe we don't see the results of this now, but we all will have to pay the price of the deception and misleading and falsehood that has been and dehumanization. dehumanization. Unfortunately, the people of Gaza are paying a really heavy, extreme price. Not, not all of it is on the media. But to find yourself again and again on the wrong side of history, to allow a war like Iraq to go ahead when it should have been your job to double check that stuff. And it's the same lie. And if anything, we need to think about what the coverage tells the rest of the world. Guys, the rest of the world thinks as follows. The only way to kill civilians in a legal way, in a justifiable way, in a way that you will find people who will back you up, is to buy them from the right person. This is, this is the international law that is at the moment applying all around the world. Buy from the right people, you can kill babies, journalists, you can destroy entire cities, you can, you can do whatever you like. And don't worry, the shop you bought from will not just deliver in timely manner, allow you to use their spare stockpiles, all of it. They won't just go out of their way to support you in this way. They will go out of their way to support you. As long as this war makes money for particularly weapons manufacturers, and as long as these weapons manufacturers continue to have this level of influence, on political life in general, including media, we will be seeing, uh, I think obviously stopping the, this genocide at the moment is top priority. I encourage anybody who's listening um, to think 
properly about all the avenues that the practical stuff that they can do. Even if you're not part of a group, get involved in a group. There is a lot of stuff you can do on your own. There is, but there is more power to do stuff in groups. And I, I cannot tell you what is the best thing to do. You know your environment best. Make sure to check with people who know more. If you're trying to do a union action, for example, a strike, check with trade unionists who know more about this. Learn more. Make the effort because we want effective activism and solidarity action. And we need it urgently now. And we need it to continue for the future because the ceasefire is not the end of uh, the story here. Uh, these people, we need to who have gone through some of the most unimaginable horrors of modern times uh, will need us for many years uh, to advocate for their voice, to call for their respect for their freedom and dignity, and uh, to make that call even wider, the, the dignity of every human being across the world. We need to wake up now before... This repeats itself in Palestine and other places. Thank you so much, Anand Kusmar. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. That was very sobering, important, uh, disturbing, obviously, uh, but it's so important to hear from voices like Anand, and I really so appreciate what he is doing and what the syndicate is doing. The problem with this genocide is, and trying to cover it from afar, is there's just, you can't keep track of all the atrocities. You can't keep track of all the murders. Even trying to keep track of all the journalists that have been murdered by Israel is impossible because it happens pretty much every single day. And I don't know how anybody in Gaza does it. Um, and these journalists trying to stay there and bring the stories, the horrors to the world, uh, it's unfathomable what they go through. So I really appreciate Anand for trying to, you know, shed light on that and yeah. and and what they face. These journalists are so brave, and you contrast that with the absolute cowardice of most Western journalists who don't even have the courage to ask adversarial questions, let alone risk their own lives. Oh yeah, no. I mean, they sit in studios and they just parrot Israeli talking points. They don't challenge genocidal rhetoric. They offer, you know. Uh, tactical concerns like are Israel's goals feasible? Are they achievable? They never question the fundamental premise of whether Israel has a right to commit genocide in the first place. So thank you so much as always for joining and we will see you next week. Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.